everyone. My name is Dan Spino. I'm the Belong Pastor on staff here, and I get to uh, continue in our worship here with looking at God's Word. <clears throat> now, I know I've been up here before. I told you that if you saw me that I didn't mention life groups, there would be something wrong with me. I just want to assure you I'm not here to talk about life groups or the life group launch on April 12th um, that you can go to. I'm not going to talk to you about the importance of life groups or why you should get into life groups or um, we're not going to do that here. That's not what I'm about this morning. Um, I mean, George didn't tell you about the worship night on Friday at 7 p.m., did he? No, that's not what we're about, guys. Um, so today we're here to uh, look at the book in the book of Isaiah. Um, and our text challenges our ability to see and hear. And we're going to look at the, what that means from a spiritual perspective, uh, to be able to spiritually see and hear. Uh, and as we do, um, I want to just maybe open with this question. I was, I was wondering if you ever have had a situation where maybe like there's something that's been in front of you the whole time, uh, maybe something you walk past that you just never noticed before, and then one day you look at it and you're like, wow, that's, that's always been there, that's weird. Um, or maybe it's like if you lost your keys, that's a common one, right? And then after an hour or two of searching, um, you put your hand in your pocket, you're like, oh, there, there they are, great. Um, but I'm talking a little bit more than that. Um, so for example, I don't know if you knew this or not, tulips, uh, the flower tulips, um, Every night, the, the flower actually they closes up, um, and then every morning, it, op- it opens back up. Um, I noticed this. Uh, when we were living in Illinois. We had some tulips out in front of our condo, and every day I walked by them at different points of the day. I'm like, man, they, they look different. I don't understand. And I just looked it up, and I realized, wow, that's fascinating. They close up every night to protect the pollen and to protect their parts inside, and then they open it back up every day um, so that they can share the pollen. Um, or even just around here, we have an amazing sky. Um, there's almost, there's, there's not zero light pollution, but there's low light pollution. So if you've ever been out for a walk at night, um, and you just pause for a moment and look up, if you haven't done this, you really need to do it, especially around here with all these farm fields, it's amazing. The stars that are out, the, the, you can see planets, you can see satellites flying overhead. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. And it's there the whole time. You just got to stop and actually pay attention to it. Um, or perhaps my, my, one of my favorites, actually, um, in this kind of category, uh, Ned Davis pointed this out. Ned's on staff here as well. Ned, Ned pointed this out. Downstairs, somewhere in this building downstairs, I don't know where I am geographically in this building right now. So downstairs, there's a window uh, where twice a year, the, the sun kind of comes in and hits this window and casts a, like, the light all the way down the hallway. Uh, and if you're a day late or a day early, you, you're going to just miss it. Um, it probably has something to do with, like, the longest day and the shortest day of the year, the way the sun positions. I don't fully know, but it's just absolutely, it's amazing. And it only happens twice a year. Um, and I want to let you know, we're actually, we're selling tickets, um, effective this morning, if you're interested. <laughs> if you want to reserve your seat, we're offering a discount if you, for the first 500, um, $5 off. So, yeah, we'd... I'm just joking, of course, but there, this is, there's just so many things in our lives that, like, just go unnoticed. We just don't stop and see. We don't stop and pay attention to. We don't listen to the things that are happening, and this is true in our spiritual lives as well. There's, there's times in our lives where we just don't pay attention to God at work, to God speaking, to God acting, to God doing. We just miss it, and we lose sight of who God is in the process of that. And when we do that, we're then misinformed on who we are and how we ought to live. And we're going to see that in our text today. Uh, Today we're going to look at the lives of the Israelites. We're going to continue in our Isaiah series. Uh, But really, the Israelites are just a model for us. Uh, We can look at them, and we can see us, and we can draw out truths in our own lives. 
Um, but what we need to do, really, is we need to, like, we need to kind of flip that script a little bit. What we need to do is approach it from a different way. You see, understanding who God is, so stating it positively, understanding who God is helps us understand who we are, who we are meant to be, and how we are meant to live. So understanding who God is helps us understand who we are meant to be and how we are meant to live. And as we explore this statement, this text, let me just, let me pause now. Let me open us in a time of prayer. Lord, you are, you are marvelous. You are wonderful. And I think we all corporately need to confess that we just miss that sometimes. So Lord, I ask now that you would open our eyes, open our ears so that we can see and hear you in that spiritual intimacy way that you do, that you would draw us to you. Lord, may you use this text to bring you glory. The things that are not of you that I might say up here just cause them to fall away, even let me forget them. The things that are of you, Lord, I pray that they would just take root, that they would stick, and that we would be a transformed people because of it in a way in which brings you glory, because that is what we aim for, Lord, all the time, to bring you glory. So help us in that endeavor now as we look at Isaiah 42 and 43. And we ask this in your name. Amen. The Bible is God's story um, about his redemptive plan for his people. Um, He he aims to draw his people back into a deeper relationship with him. And that's the whole kind of meta-narrative of the Bible. And Isaiah continues in this uh, salvation story, if you will, with this mixed message. He brings a message of hope, a message of comfort, a message of salvation, uh, along with a message of judgment. And today, as I said, we're going to continue in our Isaiah series. Last week, we started looking at Isaiah 42. Um, today, we're actually going to continue into um, the rest of 42 and into, into 43. It's part of that kind of broader comfort section, if you will. Uh, and then the sermon after this is going to continue as well. Now, just a brief note, we are going to take a break after today. We're going to enter into like an Easter series uh, for the next couple weeks through Easter Sunday, April 1st. So the next Isaiah's passage will actually be April 8th. And it'll be on the back half of 43. And what you'll see is there's like these concentric circles, right? We keep hearing these similar themes, these similar phrases that God wants us to see. I promise it won't be the same message. um, uh, But there is this kind of repetition as we follow along in God's word. Our text today, um, specifically, draws the audience back to this covenantal promise. This covenantal relationship that God is trying to draw his people into. And it highlights their inability, and frankly, our inability. We use them as a mirror for us. Our inability to uphold our end of this relationship. And yet, despite of that, God's amazing steadfast love, the word there is is hesed, God's amazing steadfast love, his hesed and his grace towards us. That he still holds up his end of the promise and he will provide a way out. And as we see in this text, understanding who God is helps us understand who we are meant to be and how we are meant to live. But to get started, we're actually going to look at the opposite. We're going to go back to the opposite. We're going to look at how, who we are when we forget who God is and the resulting spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness that transpires. And we see that in the back half of Isaiah 42. So Isaiah 42, uh, verse 18 through 25. We'll have the verses for you up on your screen. I'll keep talking to stall a few more minutes to let you give you a chance to get there. Isaiah is one of the major prophets um, in, the, in the Old Testament. It comes right after Proverbs, Psalm, and right before Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, right in the, almost in the middle, close to the middle of the Bible here. Um, but again, we'll have it up on the screen if you don't have it, on your phone, whatever. Here we go, 42, verse 18 through the end of 42. It says... Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, 
or deaf as my messenger whom I send, who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as a servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered. Uh, that word there, plundered, it's, it's this word, like it's the conquest that a conquering army takes. It's like spoil, kind of think pirates, if you will. Um, they're plundered, they're looted, and they, all of them are trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the, for the, for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Our text today starts off with this contrast of God's servants. If you remember last week, if you were with us last week, if not brief review here, at the beginning of Isaiah 42, all the way back in the beginning, God talks about his servant to come, and that is in reference to Jesus. Um, and here we have a different use of the word servant. It's his people, God's servant people, here the Israelites. And we can see this contrast. So in 42 verses 1 and 4, we read, Behold my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. That is Jesus. That is complete reference to the coming Messiah fulfilled in Jesus. It's a promise. But we can compare that now to the language in 42, 18 through 19. So just 18 verses later. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant or deaf is my messenger whom I send who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as a servant of the Lord. This text is all about the spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness of God's servant people, the Israelites. And it causes us to kind of reflect upon our own lives as well. And we see in verse 20 that these people actually had the physical ability to see and to hear. It says that, that you could see, but they weren't seeing. They could hear, but they weren't he hearing. They were not paying attention to their sinful actions and the consequences because of their actions. And there's a result. This is a result of a lack of faithfulness. God made a covenant with his people. A covenant, it's a promise. He entered into an agreement with them. And he said, look, I'm going to make this really easy. Honor and obey me. Worship me. And all will go well with you. In fact, he even says he'll do all the hard work. And he did all the hard work, right? He cleared lands. He removed people. He'll even be the one to sacrifice for himself, he tells them. All you have to do is obey me. Follow me and obey. He wants their heart. But they went, ast they went astray. Time and time again, they went astray. They became spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. And the key verse to help us understand this is really is verse 24. It says very blatantly, you have burdened me with your sins you have, sorry, that was a different 24. That's 43. In 42, was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? And then yes, in 43, 24, not part of our passage, but God adds to it. He says, strong language, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. They are blind to their own experiences. They are blind to the covenant that God's called them to. They are blind to the punishment that they are receiving. Their sin has just completely engulfed them. They failed to understand that it's against God that they have sinned. 
They failed to understand that they are God's called out ones. God wanted them to live differently. He wants them to live differently, and they won't. I mean, these people are a mess, right? (laughs) We're at this kind of 10,000-foot level, and we get to look down on them, and we just, what's wrong with these people, we wonder? We're astonished. How could they be this way? I mean, a few chapters earlier in Isaiah, we read about the greatest victory in the history of Israel. God wiped out 185 Assyrians. They were at the, they were at the gate of Jerusalem. There's fear over them. God just comes in and just takes it up. They did nothing. It was all at the feet of God. And how did they respond? Continual unfaithfulness. God works time and time and time again in the lives of these people. And they just respond with unfaithfulness. What is wrong with these people, right? (laughs) Perhaps, though, that's not the right question. Because we need to ask these questions of ourselves as well. Maybe a better question is, what causes spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness? How do they get to this point? Understanding that will help us understand ourselves. So let's start there. How would you answer that question? How would you answer that question if somebody asked you, what causes spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness? either in your own life or maybe in what you've seen in others. I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with the person that you're sitting next to if you came with somebody today. It's not, it's not them. It's not the city in which you live. It's not our culture at large. It's not a work situation. It's not a school thing. It's not a friend thing. It's, it's all about one place. It starts in one place, and that's inside of you. You see, our hearts and our souls are tender gardens that need to be cultivated And God wants us to cultivate a relationship with him as we do. But when we neglect God, when we grow weary of him, as we see later in 43, our hearts grow calloused. We start to move away from him. We start to move towards spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness. We grow weary of God. That's a really profound statement. Have you ever experienced that, growing weary of God? My guess is a lot of us would say no. Um, That was my first answer, like, no way, weary of God? And I just really, I thought about it. There's times in my life where I feel called to pray, where I just said, no, I'd rather not pray right now. As if me speaking to God is a burden on myself. (laughs) Or when God puts that prompting in your life to do something, and you get really excited, like, yeah, I'm going to go do that. I feel like God is really leading me this way. And then at the end, you're like, nah, I'd rather not do that. It's just easier to just not. Our laziness kicks in, our apathy kicks in, and instead we start to weary God with our sins. Now, some of them are small, right? Some of those are just those laziness or just omission type things, but some of them are even bigger. Some of them are those more egregious ones, if you will, the hidden sins in our lives, the sins that most people don't see. Perhaps it's our thoughts or our affections. Uh, Maybe it's a sexual sin or drug or alcohol abuse or even just a racial prejudice that you have. Most certainly, all of these is born out of a selfishness and the feeding of our flesh. And we become spiritually blind to the God and the work that he's doing all around us. We become blind and deaf. We just can't see him at work. We just kind of tune him out. In John chapter 9, Jesus does this amazing miracle. You see, this blindness and deafness, this spiritual blindness and deafness has existed all throughout time. In John chapter 9, as God often does, he uses physical phenomenon to teach spiritual truth. We have this blind man, born blind. Jesus heals him. He goes to the temple, and the Pharisees are like, who healed you? He's like, I don't know. I was blind. I see. It was this guy. He must be God, though, because only God can do these things. And they just, they kick him out. Like, no way. Get out of here. Go away. And Jesus comes to this man, and he comforts him, and he says, for judgment 
I came into this world. In verse 39, verse 39, he says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see, that is, those who are meek, those who are humble, those who are actually seeking Jesus, those who do not see will be able to see. And those who see, those who think they have all the right answers, those who are swallowed up with their pride, with their self-righteousness, will become blind. They saw the very physical work of God right before their eyes, and yet they refused to believe and if you can contrast that to the blind man, we're told he sees Jesus, he, he, he believes in him right away, and the next, very next words are, and he, worship, he worshiped him. He believed, and then he worshiped. And this is key to helping us understand this text in our own lives. You see, spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness happens when anything or anyone becomes the object of our worship instead of God. When we desire anything or anyone other than God. The result of that is spiritual blindness. And the result of spiritual blindness is sin. As we saw in this Isaiah passage, they refuse to obey God and instead pursue their own sins. We lose sight of God, and instead, for us, we just focus on sin and its many devious and deceptive ways. We become calloused. We lose sight of the very work that God is doing. And we forget, as the Israelites say, that we're God calls out ones. We're, we're meant to be like the messenger to the world. We forget that. We lose sight of that. We become so focused on what we want. We become focused on our little kingdoms that we're building. Our fears, our desires, we become focused on our pride, our preferences, and we become blind and deaf to all the work that God is doing around us. There's an artist by the name of Audrey Assad. She's a Syrian-American uh, musician. She's one deep sister. Um, her music is just so profound. Um, you can tell she's been through the valley. She's been through sorrow. She's been through spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness. And out of that, she writes. And it's just so beautiful. One of her songs, she writes, um, she cries out to God. She says, deliver me, deliver me, God, from the love of my own comfort, fear of having nothing, life of worldly passions, the need to be understood, the need to be accepted, fear of being lonely, fear of serving others, the fear of death or trial, the fear of humility. Deliver me, she says. Perhaps some of us can relate to these. These are things that we seek. We often seek comfort. We seek our name. We seek to be accepted. We don't want to humble ourselves. We have fears. We don't want to serve others. Deliver us, Lord, from, the, from that. But then she says, she continues on, and she says, when I taste your goodness, I shall not want. And this is the journey that this text really takes us on. Isaiah 42, the back half of 42 here, is all about needing deliverance from our spiritual blindness, from the things that we are just, that are just binding us up. And Isaiah 43 is all about tasting God's goodness and understanding who he is. So let's go there now. Let's go to Isaiah 43. We're going to read through verses 1 through 21. And we'll have the text up on the, on the screens for you as well. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, who, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and let the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there is no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God, and also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I have formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Man. As the Israelites listened to this letter, they would, have been, they would have been astonished. They would have recognized a lot of the language that's used in this, in this letter here, this part of this chapter. They would have recognized that God was, through Isaiah, was really drawing them back to a major event in their life, the Exodus. God brings them back to the Exodus and then brings them forward to something new. God speaks through Isaiah using this reminiscent language to help comfort them, to help remind them, to jog their memory Listen to this. He says, he uses the phrase, I am, several times. That would have immediately brought him back to when God was interacting with Moses and God says, tell them I am. I am the one who sent you. He talks about, he talks about water that will not overtake them. And that's a reference back to the Nile and to the Jordan. Two rivers that they were able to walk through in which the water did not overtake them as they started the Exodus and as they finished it on their journey. He calls out Egypt specifically. Egypt is the, the nation that they were fleeing. The language of redeeming and saving he uses, which is exactly what God did in the time of the Exodus. Even the phrase, I am the Lord, your God, would have jogged their memory because they would have been waiting for something to follow that. They would have been waiting for it to say, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery. That is familiar language to them. He draws them back to work that God has done and prepares them for what he will do. He's about to do something new, the text tells us, and it's going to be just as magnificent. Now, it's not going to be a carbon copy. He promises it's going to be amazing, but it's not going to be exactly the same. It will be something new. You can trust in God's goodness. You can trust in God's good plans for them. 
That's what he's trying to tell them. You see, this chapter, this part of 43, is all about God, <laughs> who he is, the holiness that's described in him, the work that he has done, and the work that he will do. And let me tell you, it is absolutely profound. The language used, the, the, the style, the, the things that happen in this text, it's just absolutely profound. Listen, if, if 43, if chapter 43 of Isaiah <laughs> does not elicit some type of response from you, either in confession of sin, repentance, or moving you to worship and praise, or better yet, moving you from spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness, I don't know what will. Wake up. <laughs> Listen to these words. Soak them in. This chapter highlights a magnificent father who has been at work throughout all of time and who will continue to be at work all of time. He has done great things, and this text says he will do great things. We see that he is a great and holy God. Where do we see that? Right? That's, maybe you're wondering that. I'm so glad you asked. Let's look at that. Basically, in every single verse. Listen to this flyby of these 21 verses. Ready? Here we go. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I will be with you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I love you. I am with you. Everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory. I formed and made. I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor any after me. I, I am the Lord. Beside me, there is no Savior. I declared, I saved, I proclaimed, Henceforth I am he. None can deliver from my hand. I work your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. I am doing a new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness. I will make rivers in the desert. I will give water to drink my chosen people, people that I formed for myself, me, my, mind, I. It is all about God. Can someone please say amen? Hallelujah, because I'm about to burst up here. Do you not see? Can you not hear? Can you not hear? Do you not see? This chapter is profound. It's 34 statements, by the way, in 21 verses, and I am certain I left some off. Lean in and listen. The cure for spiritual blindness, the cure for spiritual deafness, is to shift your focus from yourself and place it on this absolutely profound holy other, heavenly Father, that you get to worship. It's an honor to worship him. And if worshiping him is, is too much for you, then you are in grave danger. And when I say worship, I want to let you know, I'm not just talking about like clapping our hands like we did today or tapping your, your foot to the amazing drummers that we have here or singing songs. That's, that is worship, absolutely, but that's not what I'm referring to. I mean, ponder the fact that every second of reality is completely based on him completely wrapped up in him every moment there's so much to say about god in this chapter we could do sermon series on isaiah 43 alone we don't have enough time to cover it all so here's here's six attributes six things that i pulled out that might help us with our spiritual blindness and understanding who god is First, we see that our God is the only God. There is no other. He's the Holy One set apart from all others. God draws, draws his people back into this like courtroom imagery in verses 8 through 13. He pulls them in. He says, gather around. Go ahead. Bring your witnesses. I'll bring my witnesses. We'll see what happens, <laughs> essentially. All this worth that you're ascribing to other gods, to other people, even my blind and deaf servants, I'm going to use them as my witnesses, by the way, which is completely ironic. 
They will testify to who I am. He says, take a look and try to understand. All creation, all history, everything in every situation, try to understand this. I am the cause of it all. I am he, it says in verse 10. And before me there is no God form, nor shall there be any God after me. God says, I am he. I am the one that you're referring to. The ones that you're, you're ascribing my worth to. I am he. It belongs to me. And Israel and Judah are God's witnesses. And then in verse 13, he adds, and henceforth, I am he. <laughs> I was the one that did these things, and I will be the one that keeps on doing these things. And I will continue to do them. I will continue to be the God ongoing. Don't even question it. By the way, later in the chapter, we see armies bow down the, before him. There's this kind of Calvary language. They come to him, and they just, he, he, he extinguishes them like a wick, it said. <laughs> He makes a way in the desert. He ushers in his, his peace, his shalom. God's rightly shalom. He, there's going to be time where these animals are just at peace before him. He makes a way in the desert. He dries up water. He makes water come. He clears a path. He's over all creation. He looks out on it all, and he says, it is mine. He is our king. He's the only God. That's enough right there. But there's plenty more. Second thing we can say is God, see, God redeems and saves. This text is clear on this. Besides him, there is no Savior. Word for word, besides me, there is no Savior. Salvation is found wholly and completely in God. None can deliver from his hand. He calls them their Redeemer several times in this passage. What's profound is that God is not thwarted by their disobedience. These people are just disobedient time and time again, as we are, by the way, time and time again. God's not thwarted by that. He is steadfast. He is faithful. And he says, you are mine. And when you are a follower of Jesus, you can embrace that. You belong to God. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because we hear a lot about biblical truths, and sometimes it's like you just, you, you don't know if you can believe them or not. When you hear God say, you are mine, and these are the things I'm saying, you have no choice but to believe him. You can own them. And from our vantage point, we know that God will ultimately send his holy servant to one in whom his soul delights. Such beautiful language. And that is Jesus. Jesus becomes the ultimate means of salvation. He conquers death. He imputes his righteousness to us so that we can have a right relationship with God. Our God is the only salvation, and henceforth, he always will be. Third, God is holy. God is holy. That word, set apart, holy other, unique, one and only, this phrase, Holy One, appears in 57 verses in the entire Bible. Holy One, 57 verses. 28 of those verses are in the book of Isaiah. Clearly, Isaiah wants us to understand and see that God is holy, that he is the Holy One. In our section here, three of those 28, which doesn't sound like a lot, but understand there's 66 verses. Three of those verses are in this text right here. God is holy. Why is it important to highlight this? Because as one of my seminary professors taught us time and time again, you cannot approach a holy God in an unholy way. When you ascribe God his right worth, when you ascribe to him what is due, the way that you interact with him, the way you respond to him is completely different. It changes your very focus. God is holy. He's not your best friend. He's not like your neighbor, right? He's holy other. God. Four, we see that God acts past, present, and future. I'll go through these last three a little bit faster. 
Uh, God acts past, present, and future. He reminds them of the things of old, and he promises that he's going to be doing new things. And he says, they're going to be new. They're going to be different, is what it says. God is on the move. God is on the move here today as well. He is still on the move. We cannot predict him, though we like to try, right? right? How often do we have like circumstances where two people maybe have one person's gone through something and the next person's going through and like, oh, I went through that same thing. This is how God acted and this is how he's going to act in your life. You wait and see. <laughs> That's not the way God works. It's not going to be exactly the same. It's going to be something new and it's going to be good because he is a good father. And no one can turn back the work that he does. He will do new, new things, good things in your life. God comforts, number five, God comforts, the text says, we see that the water will not overtake them. It says uh, the fire will not consume them. He's going to make a way for them. Twice he says, fear not. He uses this language, for your sake. So despite them, God still says, I'm doing this for your sake. Our God is a God that comforts. We need not be plundered by fear or overtaken by our circumstances. We can seek God and find comfort. And lastly, God creates. Again, there's more. This is just a quick six here. God creates. Throughout this passage, we hear God say, I have formed you, I've created you, I've established you, and he completely reminds the Israelites and he completely reminds us that we are his. We're created for him, by him, through him. All things are. God creates. We are his treasured creation. Open your spiritual eyes and see. Open your spiritual ears and see. And here, God is amazing. Shift your focus from yourself to him. That's what this text is calling us to. So then, understanding who God is will impact who we are and how we ought to be. All of this informs of who we are and then how we should respond. So let's take a look at who we're meant to be in light of who God is based on what we just covered. First, we're meant to be a people that see and hear. People that have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears and see and hear God. Look at who God is. See him and hear him. <laughs> He's the only God, and he is our God. Enter into that courtroom. God will do it. Come on in, God says. <laughs> Bring forth your witnesses. You will ascribe the worth that belongs to God alone, and we are to see that. He calls us out. We are God's servant. He invites us in to know him, to believe him, and to understand that I am he, the text says. Don't weary God any longer with your sins. Don't abandon his ways. Don't act as though you've been plundered with none to restore. Don't hide in caves or prisons that you create. Reflect on God. Pay attention to how he is at work in your life. He is at work. I guarantee you he is. That tulip opens and closes. God is at work in your life. I guarantee it. You just have to pay attention and look for it and listen for him. Second, we are to be a hope-filled people. Our God is a God of comforts, therefore we are to be a hope-filled people. Buried in this text is a tremendous message of hope. God says when, twice in Isaiah 43:2, when the water comes, when the fire comes. He says, fear not. We see that none can deliver from his hand in verse 13. Verse 14, as I address, it says, for your sake. God promises to act for our sake. And again in verse 20, it says he's going to give them a drink, his people a drink when they're in the desert. God is out to comfort, therefore we can be a hope-filled people. And hope can take time to cultivate. And often, hope is cultivated in a furnace of sorrow and suffering. And we as a community, we as a collective body here, we as a family of believers in this church, we need to learn how to rejoice together, which we do well, but how to grieve together. 
at the same time. If you can rest and trust in his holiness, then you will be okay with your circumstances, and trust in his plan will ultimately play out. And I don't say that lightly, by the way. (laughs) I wanted you to know that I, I know what it feels like to be overwhelmed by that water, to be burned by the fire. And so I can look at you and I can say, I get it. Maybe not your exact circumstance, but I'm there with you. Cultivating a spirit of hope is possible when we take our eyes off ourselves and place them on Jesus. And notice it says when in this text, not if, not if the water comes. It's when the water comes, it will not overtake you. There's going to be times when sorrow and suffering come, and we can have hope that God's good plan will play out. We just need to look for it. And third, we are to be a reflection of God's image. And there's two phrases here that kind of help us see that uh, a little bit uniquely here. In verse 1, it says, called, God uses this phrase, called by your, by name, called you by name, it says, sorry, called you by name in verse 1. And then in verse 7, it says, you are my name. So God is calling you by name, but you are God's name. We are completely wrapped up in God's identity and that's a good thing. Now, it's not a one-for-one, one, right? We're not God. God has very many attributes that we will never obtain. <laughs> God is wholly other, uh, but we are meant to be a reflection of him. That's what we learn even in Genesis 1. We're created in his image, and as God's called out ones, we are meant to be messengers to the onlooking world. We are meant to be the ones that reflect who God is to those who are wondering who God is. He is constantly forming and transforming us into him, into Christ, into the one whom all things were created by, for, and through, we read in Colossians 1. We are constantly being transformed into him. We are designed to be like him. This then demands a right response. So knowing who God is, how we ought to be, then demands a right response, how we ought to live. You see, this passage is all about, all about a misaligned worship and salvation. They were looking in the wrong place. And in this text, again, we see we are created for worship and praise. In 42.21, it says, For my righteousness' sake, to bring him glory. In verse 43.7, Whom I created for my glory. In verse 43.21, To give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is what we see back in John 9 again, right? The blind man receives his sight. Immediate response, I believe, and then he worshiped Jesus right away. This is the key to life. We need to learn to let our little kingdoms that we keep building, we need to let them fall. Otherwise, they are going to just be toppled. I guarantee it. Stop building with bricks of fear or worry or want or dissatisfaction or pride or envy or lust or greed or even this pursuing of happiness, right, that's alive in our culture. Whatever makes you happy. (laughs) Those bricks will crumble. Seek God's kingdom. Seek God's praise at all times. God is at work revealing himself to us, inviting us to be transformed by his work, that we might declare his praise for his glory, for his righteousness' sake. We see that in this text. And I've been, I've been wrestling with this this whole week as I've been going deeper into this passage. There's just something that wasn't sitting well with me. And as I reflected on my life, honestly, this is what I've been wrestling with my whole life. I want my kingdom to come. I want what I want when I want it. I want my will to be done. I want to be blind and yet see and deaf and yet hear. I want what I want when I want it, preferably a little earlier if possible. Amazon, you can ship in a day. You got it down to an hour in some cities, but can you please give it to me right now? I want it now. Me, my way, my God, my family, my child, my job, my table saw. Me, me, me. 
I want my kingdom. And God says, you have not wearied me with honoring me, but you have wearied me with your sins. All of life is meant for God's worship and praise. That's what we are created for. All of our affection needs to be set on God because he alone is worthy of our affection and our praise. And we have a choice. We can look at any situation, especially those tough situations, we can look at them and say, why, God? Why? Why are you doing this? Why this? Why me? Why? Or we can change that question and say, how, God? How, God, might you be using this circumstance in my life for your glory, for your kingdom? How are you building your kingdom through my pain, through my suffering, through my sorrows? How are you building your kingdom through my work, through my friendship, through my family? How, God, how are you at work there? I want to see, I want to hear you. Instead of saying why, we, remember, we need to remember to say how. It's all for God's kingdom. God is drawing you into a kingdom with him, into relationship with him. He is the self for our spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness. We need to turn towards him.